The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Twelve weeks. I have a deep, dark sense of foreboding about this. Oh, come on. We'll get through it. Welcome to quarantine, lads. I hope the next 84 days pass as swiftly and as pleasantly as the Hundred Years' War. Welcome everyone, it is Thursday, April 2nd, 2020. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Well, here we are. Our governments have essentially imprisoned us forced to serve our sentences in our homes. Indefinitely. We're all living in a giant concentration camp, all based on a predictive assumption that the COVID-19 coronavirus will reach some unprecedented peak in death and infections that justifies the current extreme actions being taken. And as predicted on last week's show, the conversation's now beginning to change as we will discover right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, and of course you can always visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right social media links and our archive broadcasts. And no matter where or how you listen to Just Right, consider offering your financial support to our efforts by clicking on the relevant PayPal link. And again, anyone who donates $25 or more will receive a copy of the 52-page full-color publication Climate Essentials by Dave Plum. So be sure to include your snail mail address with your donation. Now, if by now you don't know everything there is to know about SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus and the COVID-19 pandemic, then you have truly been in an extraordinary state of seclusion and isolation, which in fact might delight our government and state authorities to no end. You know, we have all the information we need about the coronavirus itself. There's nothing more to know or learn. Yeah, it's more contagious than other flu variants. There are no broadly available treatments or vaccines for this particular virus at this time, although there is chloroquine and a few others that have had successful results, but nobody really wants to take the conversation too far in that direction. As with avoiding all transmissible infections, the best advice our governments have to offer us is to wash our hands frequently, isolate ourselves for an indeterminate period of time, social distance when in public, and above all, don't get sick. So, you know, recent drastic actions taken by various global governments have called into question the wisdom of their forcing a cure on the populace that is starting to look worse than the disease. Facts, not fear, proclaim government officials as they proceed to terrify people from coast to coast about the coronavirus. Yet the only facts offered are meaningless statistics, such as, for example, one day in Canada, citing, quote, 688 cases with five in hospital and 19 deaths, end quote. And how do these statistics, which are dwarfed by comparative statistics related to a host of other viral infections, possibly justify any of the actions being taken by our politicians? I mean, some people are asking, do our politicians know something we don't know? 
If that's so, not telling us is as big a crime as you can imagine. We've been told that this is being done to protect the health and safety of Canadians. We have been told that this is being done to flatten the curve and plank the curve. We've been told that things will get worse before they get better. And one thing is sure, things will get worse for everyone, and not necessarily because of the coronavirus, but because of the outrageous response to it being taken by governments worldwide. Tragically, there will never be any way to measure the success or failure of their actions, and think about that. Whether the virus spread reaches its predicted peak and then subsides, or whether it fails to materialize at all, the government can always claim it would have been worse had no action been taken. What is measurable is the extent to which governments are violating civil liberties and destroying the economy. And on what objective evidence is this level of social, economic, and political destruction justifiable in an effort of trying to prevent the spread of COVID-19? History has repeatedly demonstrated that government-declared emergencies are too often simply a justification for violating individual freedom. History also demonstrates that the violation of life, liberty, and property kills, and has killed, more people than any flu virus ever has. What needs to be spread, as I pointed out last week, is a virus of liberty, not a pandemic of government control. This kind of thinking is, of course, beyond the realm of most people's considerations and concerns. Connecting the dots in an abstract description of the crisis, well, it doesn't really solve the crisis, does it? Dispelling the myths and presenting the facts about coronavirus, quote-unquote, that's pretty much the byline and theme of almost all the talk show discussions I've been hearing on talk show radio these days. But most of the questions relate to, how do I get my money? When will the government checks be ready? How much will I get? How will I pay my rent? How will I pay my insurance? How will I collect my unemployment insurance? Right? And then, of course, there's the media's daily report of the quote-unquote facts, the daily statistical updates, counting the victims almost one by one, just to make sure that our anxiety levels go up and that we will subconsciously accept the reality that this is a pandemic of the sort that justifies everything that governments are doing. And note that they refer to cases, not necessarily to death per se, just cases. And cases do not equal crisis, although they would like us to think that. And even though the past two weeks were supposed to be quote-unquote crucial in determining whether the curve has been flattened, apparently now it's the next two weeks that are crucial, quote-unquote. And then what's it going to be? Well, maybe Ontario Premier Doug Ford has offered us a glimpse of our future, at least those of us living in Ontario. On this side of our upcoming bumper, Doug Ford has heard on CTV News on March 26 about his zero tolerance for price gouging, and on the return side of the bumper, Ford has heard on March 28th Global News detailing his planned punishments for price gougers. Now, I know that many people cheered Ford about his stand, but I'm not among them. When it comes to price gouging, I have zero, zero tolerance for price gouging. I'm, I'm calling them out. Uh, Pusa Terry's, I hear that they're selling hand wipes for $30 a tin. That's disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. A company like that would be selling hand wipes for, for that cost. Uh, you know something? Uh, I, I can't even describe the words what I'm about to say, but I'll, I'll tell you what we're doing. Uh, we're bringing this to cabinet and we're going to put uh, an order 
that it's going to be illegal for price gouging. So anyone, when we have so many great companies, vast majority of companies around this province, around this country are trying to help people out, they actually, people would have the nerve to, to actually jack up their prices to $30 a container for hand wipes. It's, it's, it's beyond belief. It's absolutely beyond belief. But a message to anyone who price gouges, we're coming after you. We're going to come after you hard. I'm going to protect the people of this province and uh, the price gouging. We're going to put this order through cabinet and uh, they're done. They're going to be gone. That nothing gets me more uh, furious than someone taking advantage and price gouging the public that are in desperate need of these items. I apologize, Colin, but that, that hits a, a nerve. Uh, when people are being taken advantage of uh, by companies. And again, vast majority, 99%, are, are taking care of their people, their employees, taking care of volunteering, donating, donating items uh, to people. And then we, we have bad actors like, like them. Disgusting. And make no mistake, this is a defining moment for our province. It is in these difficult times that our best of us shines through. These folks are all playing on Team Ontario. But unfortunately, there are also a few bad apples out there. We've all seen the terrible examples of those who are trying to take advantage of vulnerable people during these dark days. Those who see one of the darkest periods in our province's history as an opportunity to gouge people and make huge profits. My friends, I have zero tolerance for this kind of nonsense. And I need to take a moment to recognize the incredible leadership and the dedication that our major and independent retailers are showing right now. We work closely with the Retail Council of Canada and the Canadian Federation of Independent Grocers on the new measures I'm announcing today. They get it and they support us 100%. And we all recognize the incredible people out there working hard to keep food on our tables. But like us, they wanna go after the bad apples. So if you're out there, trying to price gouge and take advantage of this situation, trying to take advantage of the most vulnerable people right now, buying cases of essential goods, hiking the price and selling it back to people who really need it, then stop, stop right now. Because it's un-Canadian, it's wrong. And today, we're putting an end to it. Last night, my cabinet approved an emergency order that will throw the book at these type of people. If you're selling face masks, protective gloves, cold medicine, hand sanitizer, and disinfecting wipes, and you're hiking the price five times, 10 times what it should be, you're done, you're gone. Because we're coming after you. We have drastically increased the penalties you will face for this disgusting activity. We're coming after you and we will shut you down. 
The new enhanced penalties include summons to court. And if you're convicted, you could face a maximum fine of $100,000 and a year in jail. And if you're a corporation and you're convicted, your company director could face a penalty fine up to $500,000 and a year in jail. And the corporation could face a fine of up to $10 million. We're taking this very seriously. And I'm asking the public to help. Help us find these people. If you see somebody that is clearly price gouging on essential goods, I just mentioned, let us know. Contact Consumer Protection Ontario online or at the 1-800 number. It's 1-800-889-9768. I'll repeat that. That's 1-800-889-9768. That line will be open Monday morning. We're going to help everyone, everyone including our seniors and those with disabilities have access to these necessary goods. My friends, we're prepared to do whatever it takes to keep our people and our community safe right now. And later today, my cabinet will be discussing additional measures to protect Ontarians during these difficult days. We'll discuss new emergency orders based on the latest advice from our Chief Medical Officer of Health. We'll look at further limiting non-essential gatherings down from 50 people to five people. If approved, this will come into effect tonight. Essential businesses, childcare facilities, and families with more than five people will be exempt. And I'll have more to say about this later today because we all need to do our part to stay ahead of this terrible, terrible virus and flatten the curve. And I can't stress this enough. When you get home from the airport or crossing the border from the States or flying in from abroad, please stay home. Don't go get groceries. Don't go out to see your friends. Stay home for 14 days and self-isolate. Don't put the people around you at risk. You're placing your family, your kids, and your grandparents in jeopardy. If you want to support our frontline healthcare workers, if you want to protect our healthcare system, if you want to beat this virus for good, please do your part. Stay home, wash your hands, and practice physical distancing. We're at a critical moment, and if we do this right and listen to our medical experts, we'll get through this. Thank you, and God bless the people of Ontario. Well, if that didn't scare the living daylights out of you, you know, there's something wrong with you then. <laughs> You're probably suffering from altruism, which is a self-destructive yet very viral belief in sacrificing some to the benefit of others, and sometimes that other is yourself. It's a very popular belief based on a myriad of false assumptions, illogical thinking, self-delusional dishonesty, a conscious rejection of reason, and an outright denial of reality. Altruism has been the main and driving philosophy behind every totalitarian, tyranny-producing government and politician who ever walked the face of the earth. And remember, altruism is not charity or concern for others. Altruism is about sacrifice, sacrificing a greater value for a lesser value. This from the Calgary Herald. 
written by Don Braid, and the headline reads, Doug Ford pulls a classic shaming as governments move to halt scams and price gouging. And that was published March 27th, and I quote, The gougers, scammers, and profiteers are already among us. Governments must act before they spread like another new virus we might call Pond Scum 19. Premier Jason Kenney has talked tough about offenders. There must be a special place in hell for people who use a pandemic to cheat the vulnerable, he said. On Thursday, Ontario Premier Doug Ford landed like a maddened sumo wrestler on an outfit called Pusateri's Fine Foods. He humiliated the boutique grocery chain, which has seven locations in Toronto, for selling Lysol wipes at $29.99 a tube and displaying this prominently in a storefront. Those wipes are listed for $11.49 on a Canadian tire website. They're out of stock, which is exactly why people who have a supply are tempted to jack up the price. Ford showed no mercy. Nothing gets me more furious than someone taking advantage and price gouging the public that are in desperate need of these items, he told reporters. Freely naming and shaming Pusateris, he said the vast majority of companies are trying to help people out, and people have the nerve to actually jack up their prices to $30 a container for hand wipes? It's beyond belief. Ford promised a quick provincial cabinet order with penalties for gouging, which we just heard. It's not the most egregious example of price hiking, but Ford made a vivid point and followed it with action. No one will want to be the next guest on the Ford show. One could almost feel sorry for the company until it issued a smarmy apology for, quote, our mistake, our error, our oversight, end quote. Well, he's right about that. Never expect the business community to defend itself on a moral principle. You know, and you can understand it. It's like most people who have a gun pointed at their heads. They'll just say what the person pointing the gun at them wants them to say. To continue with the article, BC, meanwhile, took crucial steps Thursday that are even more important, although the rollout was less dramatic. The NDP will establish a supply chain unit that ensures delivery of goods in a timely manner, including rural areas that could go short. Retailers will have to report their supplies. Much of this will be administered by a new government unit. There will also be a ban on the resale of food, medical supplies, personal protective equipment, cleaning, and other supplies. That step is crucial. The current climate is red meat to those who will try to buy up such things as hand sanitizers, probably from someone along the supply chain who shouldn't be selling them at all, and then handing them off to the highest bidder. All these measures had already become B.C. law when they were announced by Premier John Horgan and Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth. We won't see Kenny's government diving that deep into the private economy. The idea of a bureaucratic unit to control the supply chain, for instance, would cause fainting fits at a UCP convention. These premiers differ in tactics but not goals. They're all determined to come down hard on the corrupt few who exploit crisis and misery. And they're wise to get an early start because the longer the crisis persists, the worse the scamming and profiteering will get, end quote. Now, to which crisis is the author referring? Coronavirus or the crisis of shortages precipitated by the same governments that now self-righteously want to solve the shortage problem by incrementally making it worse? They want to crack down on those who exploit crisis and misery, quote-unquote, but it's those same politicians who created the crisis and misery. 99% of the crisis and misery that I see daily is about the shutdown, not about coronavirus. Bottom line in all of this is big win for collectivism in the left. 
between the unprecedented and irresponsible spending promised, the economy effectively crippled, the restrictions on free movement in the commons, the increasing promises of more and more laws that control private matters and private affairs, the writing is on the wall, folks. In fact, it's not just on the wall. The writing's in the legislation. And as lawyer Bruce Party put it, I'm still waiting for the repeal of the Income Tax Act. Every word we just heard from Doug Ford was pure fascism being advocated and practiced. Fascism is state control of private behavior and or property. And unlike communism and socialism, which are state ownership and, and control, fascism dispenses with the ownership, since ownership's not necessary if, if you've already got control of somebody else's property. I mean, once that happens, then the person being controlled doesn't really own his property to begin with. Ownership means control. Control means ownership. And fascism, communism, and socialism are all manifestations of the left. So when Ford says... This is a defining moment in Ontario, and then goes on to list an endless and mindless array of rights-violating legislation and restrictions of freedom of association, then take him at his word. He's serious. His outrage was precipitated by a store selling hand wipes, of all things. Lysol wipes at $29.99 per tube, <laughs> against $11.49 on Canadian tires where they don't have it in stock. It's, it's, almost, it's less than three times the regular price. This is not a big price gouge. Ford's moral virtue signaling was only exceeded by his complete misunderstanding of how markets work, especially the black markets that he's responsible for creating in the first place. I mean, hand wipes, for God's sake. This is something to get excited about? Zero tolerance? The way he acted, I would have thought he was talking about somebody having literally been pulled off a respirator in order to sell it for a higher price on the black market. Holy cow, hand wipes, like, you know, like toilet paper, are not a fundamental necessity of life, however convenient and useful they may otherwise be. And a $10 million fine for selling hand wipes at a price less than three times the norm during a government-created pandemic shortage? What the hell? Viewed in strict economic principles, higher prices discourage hoarding and encourage production of something in short supply, which in turn eventually leads to lower prices as supply exceeds or equals demand. I mean, conservatives are supposed to know this. It should be part of their mantra. And here we have a government that still hasn't figured out how to run a pot shop pontificating about the morality of a completely consensual offer and transaction at whatever the price. The entire concept of a free market is all about charging what the market will bear which, in economic terms, it's no different from price gouging, isn't it? It's the same thing. And the irony is that is the process of wealth creation and explains why everyone can become better off in an economy with a growing production pie than in an economy with a fixed pie that the government rations out according to its political criteria. That's where this is all taking us. The moral difference between charging market prices and price gouging is in the mind of the accuser. Accusing someone of price gouging when they are in fact merely offering their own property for sale at a price that still has to be consented to by, an, uh, by a buyer, that's just merely virtue signaling a false morality, a false morality of altruism. Remember, the so-called price gouger can still choose not to sell his product at all. Why, why does he have to? Or can he? 
now given this new layer of fascism that Ford has dumped on us. After all, it would seem to me to be a much greater crime not to offer something you have that someone else needs for sale, right? I mean, that's what fits the fundamental moral code of altruism in this case. I mean, suppose I have a really nice pen in my pocket and I'm selling it for $250,000 to the first person who puts that cash on the table. Now, if someone is actually willing to pay my price, then that, in economic terms, can only mean that the object being purchased has a greater value to the purchaser than does the cash involved. It's still a win-win situation, but the principle, both moral and economic, is the same no matter how you apply it. Morally, the transactions would be based on consent, economically, on subjective value. Whenever governments interfere with that relationship, they are behaving immorally and economically destroying value and wealth itself. Now, if someone was actually willing to give me a quarter million for my pen, then that would mean that he or she would be very incredibly wealthy, quite likely a billionaire, and that's if they're not crazy. And that's what really basically pisses off the altruists. Those with greater wealth can afford life's necessities at higher prices, and envy takes over their sense of reasoning. That's really what all of this is about. And that, again, is a manifestation of altruism. Why should those who are willing to pay $30 for a hand wipe package be allowed to do so when I can't afford to do it myself? That's the thinking. That's the same logic and philosophy that has placed our healthcare system on a permanent critical status that is at the core of all the government's efforts to flatten the curve. Thanks to altruism and virtue signaling, that's where we're at with all of this. Of course, altruists always bring up need as being a justification for violating someone's life, liberty, or property. Well, even if I really needed hand wipes for some perceived reason on my part, that still would not justify my forcing someone to sell it to me or to merely give it to me or give it to me at a price that I as the buyer want. I mean, on the sheer face of it, that's insane. Yet, it's exactly what Doug Ford and his government are doing right now. The coronavirus will run its course. But the virus that Ford spread with his legislation will not, quote-unquote, run its course. It will become the course. It will justify every and all violations of personal freedoms and of freedom itself. Everything's on the table, says Ford, who insists he's willing to, quote-unquote, pull the trigger on that. Huh. Everything. That means that you and I have no guarantee of any protection from him no matter what he wants to do to us, or, God forbid, for us. Ford says he has zero tolerance for price gougers. Well, that's just another way of saying that he's in favor of 100% intolerance. That means he's not open to reason, not open to logic, not open to any argument on the topic. Is that who you want in charge of your government? Like the next flu pandemic, totalitarianism is not a matter of if, but when, especially given the kinds of laws that have already been exercised and those that are being enacted as I speak. And the idea of establishing snitch lines for, this pu for, for the public to report price gouging and, and having snitch lines for reporting people standing too close to each other, I mean, that could not possibly be more foreboding than anything I've ever seen written in George Orwell's 1984. Talk about Orwellian. And from what I've been hearing, 
when coronavirus is behind us, Ford wants to manage the province back into some sort of economic normality when all that is necessary for him and his government to do is to get out of the way and stop, stop it with the prohibitions. You're the problem. And government does not operate on a principle of consent when it grants itself the powers to spend the money of future generations while arbitrarily violating individual rights and civil liberties on the grounds of some yet-to-be-demonstrated health emergency. And everything the government does is done by force. So the government is in no position to cast moral judgments. Morality ends where the gun begins. Now let's move our attention to lies, damn lies, and statistics. And you know, it's quite sobering when you consider that this whole government shutdown was declared solely on the grounds of statistical predictions made without any reliable statistical evidence on which to base them. All statistical analyses were based on observing highly localized COVID-19 outbreaks and then jumping to statistical conclusions based on an extraordinarily low number of extreme samples. It was all based on a projection of mathematical possibilities, of exponential increases based strictly on the arithmetic of doubling counts every number of days, and not on controlled or scientific observation taken from a broader representative sample. Though I take the coronavirus seriously as a personal and public health concern, I've been suspicious about these statistics and the dire predictions they've been used to justify from the very beginning of my discussions on this issue. And I have to say that more and more people are coming forward expressing these same suspicions, including, of course, U.S. President Donald Trump, whose optimistic hope for lifting prohibitions and emergency declarations by Easter has apparently, unfortunately, been now possibly delayed to the end of April and perhaps even beyond. Nevertheless, it appears that as more and more stats are collected, stats based solely on valid tests, that as the sample numbers grow exponentially, so too will the absolute numbers of cases and deaths. But the feared death rate will drop exponentially as the reality dawns upon us that this virus has been among us much longer than any of us knew. And one person who apparently has come to share these suspicions is Ben Shapiro. And here's a small part of what he had to say on his March 27th edition of The Daily Wire. We bring you all of the updates. The biggest update, of course, is that the U.S. now leads the world in confirmed coronavirus cases. And members of the media are going nuts over this. The United States, we're number one. That was trending on Twitter yesterday. Wow, we're number one. People suggesting that this shows that America really is a third world country. Julia Jaffe, the execrable columnist for GQ, she actually tweeted out, who's the bleephole country now? Who's the bleephole? That, that, of course, is supposed to be making fun of President Trump, who suggested he didn't want people immigrating from bleephole countries because they might not actually be the best American citizens, depending on the culture from which they came. Again, that was a very controversial comment at the time and poorly expressed by the president. But let's just put it this way. The United States is not a bleephole country because we have a lot of tests, okay? If you were going to identify which countries are having the hardest time with coronavirus, the United States, yes, we are having a rough time with coronavirus. It is not even close to the countries that are having the toughest time with coronavirus. How can we tell? Because what doesn't matter is the number of cases diagnosed. What does matter is the number of cases of deaths over the number of cases a country has, right? That would be a good measure, truly, because you cannot measure the ability of a country to deal with a crisis 
by simply the bottom line number as to how many people have experienced the crisis. It's how those people actually recover from the crisis, how many people die. So while it is true that the United States now has the most cases of diagnosed coronavirus, that is largely because China has undoubtedly been lying about the coronavirus situation in China. Supposedly, according to China, they're having like 25 new cases of coronavirus a day. Does anyone believe that? Literally the day after they expelled American journalists, they apparently stopped testing in China. That is according to sources inside China. Beyond that, the United States right now, as of now, has about 86,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus in the United States, about 1,300 deaths. Okay, that's not spectacular, but that means a death rate of approximately 1.3%. Italy has 81,000 cases of coronavirus and 8,200 deaths. Okay, so eight times as many deaths as the United States, about seven times, eight times about as many deaths as the United States, and fewer diagnosed cases. Spain has 64,000 diagnosed cases and nearly 5,000 deaths. So the, the notion that the United States is a bleephole country because of the number of coronavirus diagnoses is ridiculous. I mean, France has more deaths right now, and they only have 30,000 diagnosed cases. By the way, nationalized healthcare systems in most of these places. So the, the, the kind of triumphalism, a very weird triumphalism you're seeing from the media, well, now that the United States has the most coronavirus cases, that demonstrates that the United States is the worst country. Or alternatively, it demonstrates that you don't understand math. So maybe we have the worst math programs in the country because the idiots don't understand what a numerator and a denominator are in terms of determining rates. The United States is dealing with this thing so far. And the big question is going to be whether coronavirus overcomes the capacity of the healthcare system. That has been the question for a long time. I've been talking about it on the program for weeks at this point. When we talk about flattening the curve, the point of flattening the curve is not that everyone will not eventually get coronavirus. In all likelihood, everyone will eventually get coronavirus. The question is whether that swamps our capacity to deal with it. And right now, it is unclear exactly how much we are going to be swamped because we're seeing reports that suggest we're going to be swamped. The media obviously are, are trying to kind of get ahead of those reports. We saw Casey Hunt over at NBC News tweet out earlier today that hospitals were already making decisions about who would get a ventilator and who would not, except for the fact that hospitals are not actually doing that at this point, right? And, and so the, the notion that we are like being overwhelmed right now, right this second, we don't know that yet. There have been these forecasts that we were going to get overwhelmed by earlier this week. I remember Andrew Cuomo suggested that by Tuesday, New York City's hospitals, ICU beds, their ventilators were going to be overwhelmed. And then the suggestion was that by today, by Friday, that the New York system was going to be overwhelmed. And we'll see whether it is indeed overwhelmed. Although the reality is that most of the New York public officials are saying right now that they are not overwhelmed. Right? That is as things stand at current. But the United States does lead the world in confirmed coronavirus cases because we are ramping up testing, which is a good thing. We should be ramping up testing. You want to get back to work? You want to know how bad this thing is? We need more testing. And we need tests of, uh, of, blood, uh, of blood serum. We, we need to know whether people have developed the antibodies. Because one of the things that we're trying to figure out right now is just how deadly this thing is. What exactly are the death rates? That is something that we'll have. And, and by the way, my my, I strongly suspect that not tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands, but millions of Americans actually have had coronavirus. That is, a, that, that is my deep suspicion. Not just my suspicion, by the way. The suspicion of virtually everybody who has taken a look at these numbers. It's a common misconception held by all truly stupid people. Don't correct me. 
You know how much I hate being corrected. It really gets my feckles up. It's hackles, you moron. It really gets your hackles up. There's no such word as feckles. Feckles, heckles, hackles, schmeckles, whatever the hell they are. They're up right now and pointed at you, buddy. Yeah? Yeah. Guys, guys. Look at us. What's happened to us? Five days on a sprout diet with a wallpaper and video on a crochet magazine. We've all turned into crazies. Well, just don't call me Tetchy and don't blow your nose. And don't play that video and don't correct me. Okay. 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 We're gonna get through this. And don't, don't say we're, we're gonna, gonna get, get through, through this. <laughs> Stupid, trippy optimism, that inane, winsome grin. This is insane. We've been here five days. There's no sign of any virus. We're clean. That's it. Five days. We've got him. Space Corps Directive 699. We can demand a rescreening. He'll refuse. He can't. He's playing it by the book. We've nailed him. Gentlemen, your conversation makes interesting listening. Rumor, is that you? Oh, yes. How long have you been listening? Two, maybe three hours. Well, no one's got any disease, man. We're clean. You have to rescreen us, sir, as per Directive 699. No one's got any virus and no one's smegging nuts. Well, that's good. <laughs> Is something amiss? Amiss? God, no. What could possibly be amiss? You don't think there's anything amiss? I'm sitting here wearing a red and white checked gingham dress <laughs> and army boots. <laughs> you think that's unamiss? No, of course not. It's just we thought you'd gone nuts. We were trying to humor you. I was just doing a little test. A little test to see if you'd gone crazy. <laughs> if there's one thing I can't stand, it's crazy people. Well, we've passed the test, Rimmer. You can let us out. I can't let you out. Why not? Because the king of the potato people won't let me. I've begged him. I've got down on my knees and wept. He wants to keep you here. Keep you here for ten years. Could we see him? See who? The king. Do you have a magic carpet? Yeah. A little three-seater. So let me get this straight. You want to fly on a magic carpet to see the king of the potato people? and plead with him for your freedom. And you're telling me you're completely sane? <laughs> I think that warrants two hours of W-O-O. -O. What's W-O-O? That was. Without oxygen. No oxygen for two hours. That'll teach you to be bread baskets. What do we do? I think I only hope's the potato king. <laughs> How the hell did he get the hollow virus? It can be transmitted over radio waves. He must have spoken to Landstrom at some point. I predict we have approximately seven minutes before the air in here becomes unbreathable. Oh, we gotta get out of here somehow. It's impossible. That's the whole point of quarantine. Nothing gets out. Nothing gets in. Not even a microbe. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Got this from one of our listeners. I'm currently reading this book called Bad Data, Why We Measure the Wrong Things and Miss the Metrics That Matter by Peter Shrivers. This book basically explains to me, more than any book in recent memory, exactly what is going wrong in the world from my experience at work 
to economic issues, climate change, and the way data is currently being used in this almost hoax-level craziness with coronavirus. <laughs> well, of course, Ben Shapiro gave us a good demonstration of bad data in the clip that we just heard. Especially when he said, I strongly suspect that millions of Americans have had coronavirus. And he said that's also the suspicion of everyone who's looked at the numbers. And in criticizing the media and others for not understanding what a numerator and denominator are in terms of determining rates, Shapiro pretty much hit the nail on the head when it comes to the misunderstanding and manipulation of statistics. When it comes to numerators and denominators, it's critically important to choose the relevant and meaningful stats that will assist in determining a proper and objective perspective about the crisis. And to address an even deeper concern in choosing what we measure and compare statistically, here is a very interesting and it seems to me critical observation that was made by Freedom Party of Ontario leader Paul McKeever in his March 31st blog post titled, Is Your Government Playing Games with Coronavirus and COVID-19 Names? And I quote, In times of great fear and anxiety, uncertainty and confusion does not help. It is particularly unhelpful when the confusion is deliberate. I'm referring to the widespread practice, particularly by governments and some of the mainstream media, of referring to the coronavirus and to coronavirus testing as COVID-19 or COVID-19 testing. On a webpage titled, Naming the Coronavirus Disease, COVID-19, and the Virus that Causes It, the World Health Organization explains as follows. Quote, official names have been announced for the virus responsible for COVID-19 previously known as the 2019 novel coronavirus and the disease it causes. The disease is coronavirus disease, COVID-19. The virus is Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, or shortened as SARS-CoV-2. Viruses and the diseases they cause often have different names. For example, HIV is the virus that causes AIDS. People often know the name of a disease, such as measles, but not the name of the virus that it causes, rubella. End quote. Keep that in mind as we proceed. The SARS-CoV-2 virus is the thing that's being spread. COVID-19 is the disease that affects some, but not all, of the people who become infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. When you hear that those with pre-existing conditions and those over the age of 80 are particularly vulnerable, you should understand that to mean that not everyone reacts to the infection in the same way. Some people become infected with the virus but do not suffer from the disease, which can include such symptoms as cough, fever, and difficulty breathing. Others develop the COVID-19 disease. Some who develop the COVID-19 disease die. Some of those who die, die from COVID-19, and others who suffer from COVID-19 die from other causes. Because you can be infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus without experiencing symptoms of the COVID-19 disease, you can be infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus without knowing it. Indeed, it is suspected that many have been infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus have suffered no disease while infected, and are no longer infected with the virus. But without testing for that, we just do not know for how many people that is true. Whereas 
The World Health Organization refers to the virus as the virus responsible for COVID-19. Ontario has dispensed with subtlety and instead decided to just tell everyone that the virus and the disease are the same thing. The causative agent for COVID-19 disease is SARS-CoV-2 virus. For the purpose of clear communication, Public Health Ontario uses the term COVID-19 to refer to both the virus and the disease. That last sentence makes no sense at all. If what one is aiming for is clear communication, one does not use the same term to refer to both the cause and the effect, that is, to both the virus and the disease. Clearly, the goal is unclear communication, and I leave it to the reader to guess why. Consider the effect of the decision on the reporting interpretation of test results. The test that is being administered is one that checks for the presence of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, not the presence of the COVID-19 disease. Ontario's summary of COVID-19 data is actually SARS-CoV-2 viral infection data and falsely inflates the number of infected people who are suffering from COVID-19. Why does that matter? Because those who are infected with the SARS-CoV-2 do not necessarily need the services of a hospital, whereas those heavily infected by the COVID-19 disease might. By presenting us with virus data and telling us it is disease data, we are getting an inflated sense of the current demand for healthcare services. There's little doubt that our health services are constantly challenged and we'll have a hard time dealing with what is sure to be a large bolus of COVID-19 disease patients. We're facing a crisis. There's no need to goose the numbers. It's not quote-unquote clear communication, it's misinformation. We deserve better from our communications people, end quote. And that was from Paul McKeever. Now there's an example of manipulating statistics through the use of epistemology. Misrepresent concepts and therefore misrepresent identities. I've also noticed how certain stats are being reported. For example, deaths linked to COVID-19, not deaths caused by COVID-19. And then there's this term, presumptive cases, about which I have to make a presumption. If the only people you test for coronavirus are already critically ill or dead, then it would be quite probable that the statistic reflecting the rate of death linked to the virus would be nearly 100%. On his March 30th media briefing, U.S. President Donald Trump cited death projections in the United States related to COVID-2 as being in the 2 to 2.2 million range, but now is operating on a model projecting between 100 to 200,000 deaths. You know, I heard talk show host Evan Solomon speaking on CJBK AM 1290 this past Tuesday, calling Trump a liar and a failure for declaring a victory if only 100,000 Americans die. On our own show last week, you'll recall that we played an audio bite featuring Michael Osterholm in conversation with Joe Rogan. And on that show, he pointed out how the infectious people can get that way long before they're sick, that there's 10 to 15 times worse rate than the seasonal flu, and that a conservative estimate would place 48 million in hospitalization, 96 million cases, and 480,000 deaths over the next three to seven months. Now, 480,000 deaths sounds like an astronomical number, and in absolute terms, it is. I'm reminded of Joseph Stalin's famous quote, a single death is a tragedy, a million deaths are a statistic. And that turns out to be a universal truth, even though it may not have originally been intended as such. 
Every death is a tragedy if you are personally affected by it. All my life, whenever I've brought up any issue involving statistics into a conversation around the dinner table, my mother would always inject something like, but it's 100% if it hits you. (laughs) And of course, all of these things are true when placed in the proper context. And that was just my mother's way of avoiding a conversation. In order to deal with and solve problems, staying in the proper context is essential, and perhaps this speaks to the central issue in determining whether government actions are justified in given circumstances and contexts. On a statistical level and context, Michael Osterholm's conservative projection of 480,000 deaths in the U.S. would roughly translate, and I'm using a rounded number of 300 million as the population of the U.S., which I know is low, but I just divided 480,000 by that, and I got 0.0016, which really should be lower. So that's a little over one-tenth of a percent. Now, in Canadian statistical terms, that would mean approximately 56,000 deaths, 35 million times 0.0016. But if you change the denominator from the total population to the total known carriers of the virus, those with SARS-CoV-2, that rate will naturally rise. And if you change the denominator from total known carriers of the virus to total known numbers who have contracted the COVID-19 disease, that rate will go up further still. On March 30th, during his meeting with the press, Trump announced that over 1 million have already been tested and they're testing at 100,000 a day. And they now have a five-minute test, meaning you can get your results within five minutes. And that will certainly drive all absolute numbers higher, which in turn will affect statistics. And in the midst of reporting on all of these developments, I was a bit surprised to hear Trump remind everyone that, quote, having borders is very important, end quote, and I doubt that when he first insisted in clearly solidifying America's borders that he would ever have been handed so profound an exhibit for doing exactly that. And speaking of borders and nations, here is Carl Benjamin from his March 24th Akkad Daily Report entitled, Coronavirus Has Killed the European Dream. Is now in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, with all of Europe practically locked down, the time for Britain to rejoin the European Union, asks the new European. Are you worried about increased trade costs with Europe, a Brexit-generated economic recession, rampant inflation brought on by government spending, and then the collapse of public services like the NHS due to the inability to recruit replacements for the EU migrant staff? This might mean we need to rejoin the European Union. These are terrible, terrible ideological arguments. I guess we could go and have a meeting with Angela Merkel and ask her how she feels about it. Oh no, wait, we can't do that. Turns out she has coronavirus as well, and now she's gone into quarantine. So I guess we'll just have to look at the state of affairs. I mean, Germany, the arch-open-border Schengen-area-promoting country of Europe, is now in total lockdown. Meetings of more than two people will be broken up, apparently. And this is the case in France, Belgium, Spain, and Italy. And there are probably more that I'm just not aware of off the top of my head. It seems that Europe has gone into full lockdown mode. Because it seems that things are getting quite bad. Like the Spanish army recently found a bunch of dead elderly people in an old age home because they had died and no one had gone to deal with them. And an ice rink in Madrid is going to be used as a temporary mortuary for the victims. 
Italy has reached more deaths from the coronavirus than in China, and apparently they can't cremate the bodies fast enough to keep up. To which Germany has absolutely nothing to say. And it's it seems quite extreme. Like, apparently, Italian politicians are, like, making outlandish threats, as they say. Like, we will send police with flamethrowers if you are, you know, if you continue to associate and continue to help the virus spread. It seems that things are going quite badly, and I can't help but notice that Greta Thunberg is also in quarantine because she has it now. Man, it's interesting. But okay, so there might be the virus rampaging across Europe, locking everything down, turning it into a highly authoritarian place by all sounds. I mean, the, so politically, Europe is a diseased dystopian hellhole at the moment, where the politicians are threatening to flamethrower the population. But it's worse because they can't even figure out on a way of dealing with this. The European Union has effectively found themselves kind of stuck. They have all agreed that they need to send a lot of money somewhere, but no one can quite decide who should get how much. So the decisions aren't being able to be made. So it turns out that it doesn't matter what they think, and the effect is basically going back to national sovereignty. So the very concept of the European Union, that Europe as a continent can be centrally governed from one parliament, has turned out to be a fallacy. The European Parliament is in deadlock, but the national parliaments have just simply taken their sovereignty back, closed their own borders, and are now dealing with their own internal economic positions. It proves that the European Union's method of governing things from a remote centralised superstate is not viable because crises happen. However, more local national governments, they absolutely can deal with this. Because this quote from the Dark Knight's Joker seems to be really applicable. You see their morals, their code, it's a bad joke. Dropped at the first sign of trouble. They're only as good as the world allows them to be. I'll show you when the chips are down, these civilized people, they'll eat each other. See, I'm not a monster, I'm ahead of the curve. Well... The French did impound 130,000 face masks that are heading for Britain and the NHS because they felt they needed them, even if they weren't theirs. The Czech Republic seized 100,000 masks sent by China to help Italy. Germans started seizing medical supplies for Switzerland. And so it seems that what the Joker has said here is correct. They might have all of these rules, but when the chips are down, they don't care. They're not in it for cooperation, they're not in it for each other, they're in it for themselves. And that's what this shows. Like, there is no justification for this. Even, everywhere suffering from this, but the rules are as the rules are. The delivery should go to where it's supposed to be going, because they're the people who paid for it. You don't just get to arbitrarily say, we're taking it because we need it. That's not a spirit of cooperation. Because what this means is that the European dream is over. This is proof that when any crisis strikes, when something happens that requires a common, coordinated effort, then it can't be done from the European Union. There are too many directions in which the thing pulls, and nothing is achieved. The local, decentralised, national governments are the ones that need to deal with this. The European Union is a problem, and it's Russia sending help to Italy and not the European Union that puts the final nail in that coffin. 
Instead, they just start seizing each other's medical supplies and bickering amongst each other about where money should be spent. And Russia actually sends some aid. Russia is acting in its own self-interest. It's not being altruistic. In fact, you could say it was an actual goodwill gesture. Russia is a nation-state, has its own identity, and has an interest in being seen as an international presence. Russia, by the way, also sent supplies to the United States. Now, I couldn't help notice that Benjamin's description of the blatant authoritarianism in European nations was very reflective of how Ontario Premier Doug Ford sounded, as we heard earlier in the show. Quote, turning Europe into a diseased dystopian hellhole where the politicians are threatening to flamethrow the population. Wow, that was really something. Much of Benjamin's argument and description of the national actions taken by individual countries in the EU reflected our earlier conversations about price gouging and altruism. But clearly, we are seeing a reassertion of the nation-state with sovereign borders. Nations restated, if you will. This, of course, is a major issue relating to globalism that has so frequently commanded our attention. And this whole pandemic situation will eventually evolve into a mostly political conflict and debate that could carry on for many years hence. Now, time is running out fast for this week's show, and there are still so many dimensions of the whole crisis that we will certainly cover on future upcoming broadcasts. Among those topics will be the crisis we face after the current pandemic subsides. I think it's been an overstatement to suggest that the economy will recover after all prohibitions are lifted. The economy may not recover. Look at this headline. Jobs may not return after pandemic agencies fear. Read one headline in the London Free Press on March 27th. And consider the sheer psychological damage done to the investment climate by this single action on the part of government. Fewer will want to risk making long-term investments in anything that could so easily be destroyed by the writ of a pen. You know, you can't just turn on and off a wealth-creating process. Sure, the economy will always recover after some given disaster, but that doesn't mean it's the same economy with the same players doing the same kind of economy. That's going to be one of the really big issues we'll have to face. And then, of course, there's China, the healthcare system, socialism, and a media frenzy surrounding up-to-the-minute updates on statistics and how to get your subsidy check from the government. And I guess a lot of this now is a waiting game as people sit back and continue to count the numbers. Numbers and stats related to SARS, COVID-2, and to COVID-19, and the numbers and stats related to the economy itself. Trump has now extended America's shutdown to the end of April. So I guess by the end of the month, we'll all find out whether or not we've been April fools for having destroyed our economy for May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December, and onward. And as they say, the next 14 days are crucial. And between now and our next broadcast, seven of those days will have revealed their secrets to us. So be sure to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Guys Just take it easy <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
tells me to take it easy one more time, I swear I'm gonna turn his ears into a pair of maracas and tap dance a fandango on his throat. What you saying? The 79 more days to go. And if you still want to be alive when there's only 78 more days to go, I suggest you do not blow your nose. Do you mind if I ask why? Well, let's forego the noise and the revolting burbling sound and go straight to the really gross part when you always, and I mean always, having blown your nose, have to open up the handkerchief <laughs> and take a look at the contents. I mean, why? What do you expect to see in there? <laughs> a Turner seascape, perhaps. <laughs> the face of the Madonna. An undiscovered Shakespearean sonnet. 